Good morning, church. My name is Michael Turner, one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb, and I'm gonna do something a little risky this morning. I'm gonna bring up a sore subject these days in the state of South Carolina, and that subject is college football. Now, yesterday helped a little bit, but it's been a rough season, right? I, I guess I should qualify that just a little bit because a few weeks ago, David Pollock was here, and when he was here, I learned that we have a few Georgia Bulldogs fans in our congregation. They always let you know where they are. But this morning, if you're a Georgia fan, uh, I'm not talking to you just for a second, only talking to the Christians in the room. <laughs> just kidding, I'm just kidding. But in the state of South Carolina, the South Carolina schools, it has been a rough season. Take, for example, my alma mater, Walford College. We are on the, <laughs> there are a few of us terriers in the room, but we are on the struggle bus this season. We are zero and nine. We haven't won a single game. And full disclosure, even though I'm a Wofford grad, I grew up and have long been a diehard Gamecock fan. We are all accustomed to disappointment, right? Um, and this year has been worse than normal. In fact, not just for South Carolina, but for the other big in-state school as well. South Carolina and Clemson are suffering through some really down years. In fact, you've probably seen the same memes I have about the Carolina-Clemson game being moved from ESPN to Comedy Central. Have you seen that? It's gotten so bad, in fact, that, that both fan bases are calling for Shane Beamer and Dabo Swinney to be fired. And before the season, if you'd asked me if that was possible, I would have said no, because I thought both coaches were universally revered by their fan bases, but it just goes to show you how fickle fans can be. When, when things are going well, when you're winning, when there's positive momentum and everything is exciting, you can't stir fans with a stick. But when adversity strikes, when things get a little bit difficult, when the cost goes up and celebration turns into sacrifice and there's pain involved, well, then fans can fade fast. Recently, Dabo said, maybe we need to lose a few games around here to lighten up the bandwagon. Now, I think he caught a little bit of heat for that comment, but it does point out the problem with fair weather fans. When, when the going gets tough, fair weather fans flake out and go home. And I've been thinking about all of that this week because of our scripture passage for today. This is week two of our Nothing to Lose series, and today's theme is nothing to lose when you choose to follow Christ. And, and when we pick up our gospel lesson this morning from Mark chapter eight, and we're gonna camp out in Mark chapter eight, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. When we pick up this passage in Mark eight, Jesus gives us some details of what we can expect if we wanna be his followers. So this is Mark chapter eight, I'll begin reading at verse 34. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. 
If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to start out this morning by asking for your help. This might be a little bit different for some of you, but I want to invite you to turn to somebody nearby, and I'd like for you to deliver a message from me, and that message is, Jesus isn't looking for fair-weather fans. Can you do that for me? Jesus isn't looking for fair-weather fans. Now, let me try to set the context for this passage that we just read from the Gospel of Mark. We're a little over halfway through the Gospel, and up to this point, Jesus' ministry has been moving along at a pretty good clip. There, he's been preaching and teaching all around the Galilean countryside, and he's been gaining popularity, and his ministry has, has taken him all over, and he's, he's healing people right and left. He's performing all kinds of miracles. He's stopping storms on the Sea of Galilee. He's walked on water, all sorts of amazing stuff, which really causes the news about Jesus to spread quickly. And, and people are coming from far and wide throngs. These crowds are gathering, and some of them are coming, bringing loved ones who are sick, hoping that Jesus might heal them. Some are coming because they've heard about Jesus' spellbinding sermons. Some are coming just because they hope to see Jesus put the Pharisees in their place. But these massive crowds are gathering. In fact, chapter 8 starts out with Jesus feeding thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. So not only is Jesus a great preacher and teacher, not only is he healing people and performing miracles, but now he's offering a free all-you-can-eat buffet. So even if Jesus didn't have a fan club before that, you can imagine he had one after that. But about the time that, that his celebrity status was reaching its apex, when the crowds have gathered, there's momentum, he's got all these fans, he's got the Jewish paparazzi following him around everywhere. It's almost like at that very moment, Jesus says, you know what? I think we need to lighten up this bandwagon a little bit. And this is how he does it. Jesus pulls his disciples away from the crowds off by themselves, and he asks them, who do people, who do all these fans say that I am? And the disciples say, oh, well, some say you're Elijah. Other people think you're one of the other prophets. And then Jesus looks at his disciples. And this is verse 29. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter pipes up and he says, you're the Messiah. Now, of course, we know that that's the right answer. Peter is right. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is the one who was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament. He's right. But the very next verse, this is verse 30, but Jesus warned them not to tell 
anyone about him. Now, you would think that Jesus would say, Peter, you're right. Now, y'all go tell everybody this truth that I'm the Messiah. But that's not what he says. Peter gives the right answer, and then Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. Why would Jesus tell the disciples not to tell anybody that he's the Messiah? I think the answer lies in that term, Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word. It means anointed one. Christos, or Christ, is the Greek equivalent of Messiah. Both of those terms mean anointed one, and they are used to refer to a king who is anointed with oil at his coronation. And we know kings are a big deal. I mean, kings have power and privilege and entourages. They have doting servants and adoring fans who take care of all their needs. And Jesus knows that while Peter is right, there's no way that anyone is going to understand just yet the type of Messiah he will be. They can't possibly understand the kind of Messiah he's gonna be until after the crucifixion and resurrection. And so Jesus tells all of his disciples, yes, Peter's right, but don't tell a soul. Very next verse, verse 31. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, would rise from the dead. You wanna talk about lightening up the bandwagon? This'll do it. Jesus is like, yes, I am the Messiah, but don't get it twisted. I'm not gonna be the kind of Messiah you're thinking. I'm not gonna be the kind of anointed one who sits in some lavish palace while all my loyal subjects and fans come to serve me. I'm not that kind of Christ. Notice that Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. He didn't say the Son of Man might suffer. He didn't say there was a small chance that bad things might happen to them. He said it is a certainty. The Son of Man must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. So rejection and betrayal and suffering and the pain of the cross, all of those things are baked right in for, to what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Now, Peter didn't like hearing that. He took Jesus to, a, to the side, and the Gospel of Mark uses the word reprimand. Peter begins to reprimand Jesus for saying that he must suffer and die. Can you imagine reprimanding Jesus? It does not end well for Peter. In fact, Peter receives the harshest rebuke any disciple ever receives from Jesus. Judas doesn't even get a tongue lashing like Peter does in this moment. Jesus wheels around on Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You're viewing things from a worldly point of view instead of God's point of view. Ouch. I don't think Peter's ever gonna try to reprimand Jesus again after that. And then the very next verse, verse 34, this is so fascinating to me. Then 
calling the crowd to join his disciples. So he's pulled them aside, spoken just to the disciples, and now calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. But Jesus makes a point to, to call the crowds to join his disciples. So all the paparazzi, all the people looking for a miracle, everyone who's hoping for healing or a free lunch, he calls all the crowd together to come close because it's time to lighten the bandwagon. And Jesus says, hey, listen up. I'm not looking for fair weather fans. I'm looking for followers. I'm looking for devoted disciples who will go where I go, who will do what I do. People who are committed, so committed that they will not be deterred by the difficulties of life and the demanding nature of discipleship. And Jesus is like, I've already told you that, that I'm going to be rejected, suffer, and die. And if you're going to follow me, you can expect the same treatment. So in this passage, Christology is, is inseparable from discipleship. Christology, who Jesus is as the suffering Messiah, cannot be divorced from what it means to be his disciple. In other words, if Jesus is going to have to take up his cross and suffer, you best believe that his followers will be called to do the same. This week, when we were talking about this passage, Pastor Trevor said, obviously, this takes place before the disciples have witnessed Jesus give a new meaning to the cross. So their only frame of reference is the awful, humiliating, excruciating form of Roman capital punishment. And it's true. This is before Jesus has turned the cross into a symbol of victory over death. This, this is before anybody put crosses on their necklaces to wear them around. So when Jesus tells the disciples and the crowds, if any of you want to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. It would be like us hearing somebody say, if you want to be a member of Mount Horeb, then you need to bring your own electric chair because you're going to need it. That's how that would have landed on the ears of the disciples. Jesus is saying, if you're gonna be a devoted disciple, it's gonna be dangerous. It's gonna cost you everything. We have to be willing to sacrifice anything to follow Jesus. One of my pet peeves is when somebody says something like, you know, this, this old bum knee I have, it's, it's my, I guess it's just my cross to bear or, or my bad back. I guess it's, it's my cross to bear. Or heaven forbid somebody say, my spouse is my cross to bear. We hope nobody says that. But whenever I hear somebody say things like that, I think, I kind of cringe inside. I think, no, your bad back is, is not your cross to bear. I'm not saying it. It's not painful. I'm just saying that our cross to bear is whatever price we have to pay in order to be obedient to Jesus. It's the price for our obedience of following him. I'll give you an example. If you get passed over for that promotion at work, 
Because your faith in Jesus will not allow you to lie or cheat or throw somebody else under the bus in order to get ahead. And that is your cross to bear. The price for your obedience to following Jesus. That, that's your cross to bear. A couple of weeks ago, we had Prashant Betu here with us in this service from India. And he brought, brought a powerful message, message that inspired us all. A couple of days later, Prashant and his parents came to our staff meeting. And it was really awesome because Prashant translated for his father who shared his story with our staff. And I didn't know that story before. And so he told us about how he was born into a pretty well-situated Hindu family and, and he enjoyed the social status that came with that. They were higher up in the caste system. But when Prashant's father gave his life to Jesus and became a Christian, his family disowned him. The social status that he enjoyed by virtue of being a part of that family was gone. And all of a sudden, he was shunned. He became an untouchable, so he went from pretty high in the caste system to the bottom. People turned against him. His friends turned their backs on him. He suffered not only rejection, but also had to struggle in extreme poverty for his faith. That is a cross to bear for following Jesus. After Prashant had been here at Mount Horeb for a while as an intern, Pastor Jeff told me that he came to him and he said, I have to cut my time here short. I have to go back to India. Being here is making me too comfortable because the longer I stay, the more I get accustomed to not really having to suffer for my faith and I'm afraid it's gonna make it harder and harder for me to go back. But I know God is calling me to go back and share Jesus with my people in India. That is a cross to bear. That is the price for being a follower of Jesus and not just a fan. It seems like Every week, there's an article coming out about the decline of Christianity in the United States. And, and according to the surveys and the polls, the number of people professing to be a Christian in our country is rapidly shrinking. As our culture changes and, and it gets harder and harder to be committed as a follower of Jesus, as the cultural pressure increases to, to compromise our faith and our convictions, the number of people who are bothering to identify as Christians is dramatically declining. But may, and the same thing is true actually for, for church membership. Almost every denomination is seeing the number of people on membership roles plummet. But maybe church membership roles are a little bit like Dabo's bandwagon. Maybe we need to lighten them up a little bit. I mean, it's great to, to come for the music and children's ministry, but if Jesus is right, discipleship is demanding. I mean, he said it, I, I didn't. He said, if any of you wants to be my follower and not just my fan, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was 
a Lutheran pastor in Germany during World War II, and his unwavering faith in Jesus pushed him to resist Hitler and the Nazi regime, which landed him in a concentration camp. But this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about taking up your cross. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Just so you know, Bonhoeffer, after he wrote those words, was hanged to death for his faith just a few months before World War II ended. Eyewitnesses say that he quietly and courageously walked to his execution. He was willing to follow Jesus all the way to the gallows and exemplify for us what it means to be a faithful follower. Jesus wants faithful followers, not fair weather fans. Back to Mark chapter eight. Jesus calls the crowds in close and he says, if you wanna be my follower, it's gonna cost you. It's gonna be more than just cheering while we're winning and then bailing when times get hard. You're gonna have to give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me all the way. And then he says this in verse 35. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and the sake of the good news, you will save it. Now, of course, this is counterintuitive for us. I mean, Jesus is saying the more you cling to this life, the more you try to hang on by your fingernails to this life, the more you try to dig in, the more this life will slip right through your fingers. But if you loosen your grip, if you live this life open-handed, if, if you lose your life for my sake, Jesus said, and the sake of the good news, then you will gain it. You will save it. Don't cling to this life because there's far more to life than just this. You can spend your life fixated on this life, on obsessively trying to gain prestige or accumulate stuff, but you'll regret it because that's the way to lose your life. But Jesus says, instead, if you lose your life, if you lose all of that stuff for my sake, and the sake of the good news, then you will really live. 
Jesus follows that up, verses 36 and 37. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Last week, I, I pulled out onto 378 behind a car that had a bumper sticker, and the bumper sticker read, heaven, I wouldn't miss it for the world. Now, normally, I wouldn't pay attention to bumper stickers, but I already had this passage in my head rolling around. I already had Jesus's words that if you try to hang on to this life, you're gonna lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you're gonna gain it. it was, those were already kind of rolling around in my mind which made me reflect a little differently on that bumper sticker. Heaven, eternal life. I hope none of us would miss it because of this world. It reminded me actually of something Francis Chan said years ago. He had a, a rope. And he said, imagine that this rope has no end. It just keeps going on forever. And also imagine that this rope is a timeline of your existence, a timeline of your soul. The red part of this rope is our life here. So however we spend this life, and then after that is eternity where that we'll spend someplace else. But this part of the rope is our life here on earth. And, and we know that the average life expectancy in the United States is about 76 years. What's baffling is that so many of us live our lives obsessed with this. And we, we, we even wish it away sometimes. We, we say things like, well, I can't wait until I'm 16 and I get my driver's license, or I can't wait till I'm 18 and I become an adult and I can vote, or, or sometimes, I'm gonna work really hard and save all I can so that I can really enjoy this part right here. But what about come, what comes after that? Well, Jesus says that if you lose your life for my sake and the sake of the gospel, then you'll live. But if you cling too tightly to this, then you're gonna lose how foolish would it be if we cling so tightly to this that we then lose all of that? Jesus also says, if you're gonna be my follower, you're gonna have to take up your cross. You're gonna have to deny yourself and follow me. So that means that this part, this life, will be difficult. There's no question about it. You can expect that there will be suffering. There will be a price to pay for obedience to me. But compared to this, this is nothing. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling because of your faith, that obedience to Jesus is feeling like it's costing you something. Maybe it's costing you friendships because the friends that you had were weighing you down and pulling you away from the faith. Or again, maybe you got passed over at work for that promotion because you won't lie, you won't cheat, you won't 
be cutthroat just to get ahead. When this life gets difficult because of your faith in Jesus, just remember that it is nothing compared to this. We have nothing to lose when it comes to following Jesus. This morning, we have the great privilege of being able to baptize 18 people. And as I was thinking about that this week, my mind flashed back to one morning over 18 years ago when my wife and I had our oldest child baptized. It was our, our first child. I was serving two country churches in Florence, South Carolina at the time. And, and I invited one of my best friends to come and preach that morning because I wanted to just be in the congregation and be a dad that day. And I'll never forget one of the things he said during that sermon. He said, today we give Ellie to God which is all well and good if God calls her to be a teacher or a real estate agent or a doctor. But it gets a whole lot more difficult if God calls Ellie to be a missionary in the Sudan or God calls Ellie to work for peace in the Middle East or some other war-torn, violent, dangerous place. I sat in the congregation that day holding my baby girl. And tears welled up in my eyes and streamed down my face because I thought, we serve a God who's been known to do that. We serve a God, a Messiah, who was willing to suffer and die and who told us, if you're gonna be my follower, you just face it. You're gonna have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It is going to cost you something. We serve a God who calls us to lose our lives for his sake and the sake of the gospel. That's what he does. Our baptisms this morning will be by immersion. So each person is gonna be plunged underneath the water and the symbolism of that is unmistakable. Going under the water is symbolic of dying dying to ourselves, dying to our sins, dying to all of our desires and dreams and being raised to new life in Christ who will give us new dreams and new desires and change our lives, commandeer our lives as we submit our lives completely to his will and his lordship. This morning, the folks who are being baptized are not the only ones who have an opportunity to commit or to recommit to following Jesus. Here's a question for us to ponder. Are you ready to hop off the Jesus bandwagon? Are you ready to forfeit being a fan and instead take up your cross and follow? Maybe this morning, Jesus' words in Mark 8 have made you realize that when it comes right down to it, a big driver for the Jesus thing for you has been the fringe benefits, what Jesus can do for us. 
But maybe this morning, the challenge of Jesus has moved you. In fact, I hope the challenge of Jesus has moved all of us. I hope we're all ready to say, Jesus, I'm done being a fair weather fan. I am ready to be a sold out, 100% committed, devoted disciple, a faithful follower. I'm ready for that. Jesus, I'm ready to take up my cross, come what may, and follow you. After all, what will it benefit if we gain the whole world but lose our souls? We have nothing to lose. Let us pray. Jesus, we are so grateful that you loved us so much, you were willing to forfeit your life. That you're the, the kind of Messiah who was willing to suffer and die so that we might have life. This morning, we're grateful for the challenge from your word. That if we truly wanna be followers, we have to be willing to follow you all the way, to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow you. God, we confess that there have been times where we have been unwilling to do that. We have failed to do that. And in this moment, we confess that to you, and we pray that you would empower us from this day forward be the kind of disciples who are sold out, devoted to you, who stand on the promise that if, even if we lose this life for you and for the sake of the gospel, that'll be the thing that causes us to gain our life for eternity. This morning, as we gather around the baptismal pool, and we prepare to baptize these new believers. God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come down and, and bless those waters. And as these folks come to the waters and they're plunged beneath them, I pray that you wash away their, their sin and their guilt. And you'd give them the power to, to leave their lives behind so that they can be raised to new life in you and enjoy your life forever. God, we will be careful to give you the praise, glory, and honor for that. And all God's people said,